Mike Olson's sister, Diane, was away at college when he went missing, and I spoke with her about her brother. I kind of assumed he would just come back, I guess. Um, I wasn't around when he left, because again, I was at college, and then, um, but came back after, um, I went home after I heard he was missing. And um, I guess for, you know, the first maybe three or four months, kind of assumed he would just show up. Did did it seem to you that it would be in his personality to sort of go away and not call you guys, though? No, not really. No. You just couldn't imagine anything anything more. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I just couldn't imagine anything else happening. I remember just trying to call some of his friends to see if they had talked to him. And um, maybe my parents' comment, and that's why they hired Jack Harwell, because the police didn't seem that they cared that much, saying he was 18 and he could do whatever he wanted. And they had no reason to really look for him. There was no foul play or whatever um, that that they could see. So that was sort of the feeling that that your family was getting from law enforcement, that they they just, there wasn't anything and they thought it's possible he just uh, went off and he'll be back. It wasn't a whole lot of um, follow-up after that that you were were aware of? That's what I recall. Supposedly, he won money at the racetrack. And again, this is what I remember. Mm -hmm. And that my parents, I believe, had sent him some money to help pay his hotel bill and maybe for a down payment when he was going to move in with this other guy. Mm -hmm. Um, That he had some money on him, but the hotel was not in the nicest part of town versus where the uh, club was, the golf course. It was right off the highway. You know, when you're looking at certain theories, you're either, to me, the first thing I think of when a person and a car is missing is that they that they somehow drove into water or some area where they their car has been hidden all these years. They're with the car somewhere. But the idea that he got carjacked in that one-mile stretch from where he allegedly dropped off Jim to his motel at that specific time of day, it just seems that would be a huge coincidence. Not impossible, but it just seems, you know, it it seems strange that that could happen, but I guess the fact that it's still unsolved all this many years later, it points to the fact that something strange occurred. Right. And when you say that, yeah, that was always my thought too. How can something happen in within a mile? And there, you know, I don't know how much publicity they put locally out about him I mean they may not have even put anything out on the news about him going missing or anything and if that's the case if anyone saw anything they might not have even mentioned it you know again maybe because the police didn't really think anything happened to him I'm guessing it wasn't on the news and I thought they did put up some flyers but I don't know where they did we that is written in their police report they went at Mr. G's 
and they went to the Wild Side Bar, and then also they said at the Howard Johnson. So they were, at least the private investigator was doing all that, um, putting it up everywhere. So those would have been the three places that if anyone saw anything. But, you know, with the uh, how quickly the turnover is in Howard Johnson's, by the time he put those up, anyone that was staying in the Howard Johnson's at the time that, you know, Mike was, was probably already gone. Well, exactly, because by the time my parents found out, it had already been several days. Yes, there was at least a two-day two, two day delay for police even being notified. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know, it, and you talking about that, too, it was really hard on my parents because um, within a year, I think, but I, I can't remember exactly, um, a year or two after my brother went missing um, in Minnesota, we had the Jacob Wetterly case. Oh, yes. Where where he went missing, and it was all over the news and all this. And my parents were like, no, why didn't Mike get, didn't his, get, his missing get publicized like that? And I go, well, it's a little harder because the boy with Jacob was in Minnesota. His family lives in Minnesota. Um. So that was kind of hard on my parents to see how much publicity he got on that case. I imagine. Versus what my brother got. Yeah, I imagine. I think nowadays we do, I hope we do, uh, missing person cases a little bit better because in the forward-thinking jurisdictions, at least, um, they know that the best... You know, the best cause of action is to immediately start investigating it as if you would a homicide or foul play, just in case. If they turn up, that's great. But if you you miss too many hours and you miss too much, if you don't start right away checking things. And, you know, two days is already a big loss. Huge in any case. But, you know, specifically in a missing person case, it just seems, you know, it's and I don't necessarily fault how long it got taken to be reported because just like you said like Dave told me he said you know I don't recall thinking anything in the beginning other than just like what you told me well I guess he didn't like working here he was going to go home because it wasn't being really all the details being shared like his car's missing there were still things in his you know things were still in the room but people didn't understand that until I think your family showed up at the country club and started asking questions I kind of feel like Maybe I was a little too naive back then to uh, imagine that this would happen and this would still be the case um, <clears throat> that it's at. Yeah, it's hard still. Yeah, I think you guys are doing a tremendous job, even if it doesn't get any further than this. I'm, I, I know when I gave my nieces the box of stuff, I... I didn't anticipate this, but it's it's been great. In a lengthy article in March of 1980 in the Gold Coast of Florida magazine, there was an article about private detective Jack Harwood, which was written by Bernard McCormick. And in it, the private investigator discussed some details of Mike's case. The friend quickly checked out as a non-suspect. The police were stumped. A kid like that doesn't just disappear. We checked everything. He wasn't into drugs. Didn't know money or have anything that might have caused problems. The only thing I can think of is maybe somebody saw that he had money and a new Grand Prix and they killed him for it. But even then, he wouldn't just vanish from the face of the earth. 
somebody would know something, or his car would show up. One of the problems on this case is that damn bar he was in. It's so crowded. I was out there the other night, and the cars are parked all over for a couple blocks around. And you can't move in there. So nobody's really going to remember seeing one kid, you know? The bartenders aren't noticing anybody. They're going as fast as they can just to serve drinks. They don't remember one person. It couldn't have taken him more than five minutes to get from where he dropped off his friend to where he was staying. And I'm sure his friend is telling the truth. This is just a nice kid. I know he's straight. If he wound up involved in some way, man, I think I'd close up shop. And all my man had to do was drive down one fairly busy street and take a right and he's at his motel. Now tell me what can happen to you in a car in five minutes at 4.30 in the morning and nobody see anything. All I can figure, somebody spotted him and somehow got him in that brief time and hit him for the money on him in the new car. And if that's what happened, we may never find him. That's a tough one. Now you've heard me mention the name Paige a few times in this podcast, so I guess it's time I introduced him. Well, my name is Paige Neenaver, and my connection to Michael Olson was that we grew up in the same community. Uh, he on one side of a creek and me on the other. Edina is a suburb of, of the Twin Cities, a suburb of Minneapolis, and at least in the 1960s, in the 1970s, it was a really big, small town. I mean, you, you, you did have a lot of, you know, family connections and everybody knew each other. Mike lived on a street, Arden, and Arden was a community within the community. I mean, it was its own, you know, insular little uh, group of friends and families who did everything together. And, you know, I just remember that during bad times, like a uh, death of one of my friends who lived on Arden, his, his mother passed away very suddenly when he was like i think 10 or 12 and i mean the entire street came together and that's what they I mean that's what they did and so you know i knew michael he was a year ahead of me his brother uh graduated with me and we've gone uh, kindergarten through 12th grade together and i just knew michael through you know mutual friends who, who loved golf and i also knew him through youth sports which in a little affluent suburb, uh, or definitely the social uh, center. There's youth sports, hockey, and things like that. Do you think working at the, the golf club in Edina at the time would have been something that was like, you know, normally teenage kids are working at fast food and things like that. So is it sort of a step up when you're working for a golf course? I mean, what kind of a person would need to would you need to be to get a job sort of in that arena and fit in, be comfortably, you know? Well, I mean, first of all, the ECC or Edina Country Club uh, was a place. That was something that your parents seeked or soaked, if that's a word, to to attain. Membership (laughs) at the Country Club was not a given. Right. And, you know, I mean, my family was there for a couple of years and, it was, it was where you went. I mean, you went to see people, especially, you know, during the summer with the pool. I wasn't a golfer, but it was a place where you would have nice Sunday meals. And during the summer, the golf the golf course was a big deal. So for him to get a job there is kind of a, a summit that he climbed. I mean, to get in there was a, was a big deal. And to stay there, 
is at very high standards based on the fact that the clientele that they were serving were, were moneyed and expected to be treated that way. Right. I think you have to think about a 16, 17, 18-year-old kid, because he worked there for a couple years, as I understand it, before he even moved to work elsewhere. So, you know, if you're a kid and you're working, you know, sort of rubbing elbows, not not exactly in the social same social sphere but you're working in that environment you're getting to know those people and apparently he made enough of a connection to get a referral because someone from there referred him to you know the president country club in west palm i mean i think that the one uh or one of the commonalities that you see when people discuss mike was a great kid Mm -hmm. hard hard worker dependable you know, and those aren't necessarily traits that one associates with uh, 16, 17, 18 year old boys. I mean, you know, uh, it's just we're just not genetically predisposed to be that way. So for and, and I know that he was on the golf team. I had some friends who were on the golf team and these were people that, you know, this, this is something that, you know, he took to the next level. Like my friend Steve was on the golf team. He loved to golf and golf was his life, but it wasn't going to be a career. Uh, you know, he went into retail clothes. You know, uh, Michael, that was something that he wanted to take it to the next level. And I guess through connections there and a and a headhunter, he was able to to get the job down in Florida. And then being independent enough to literally go leave. I mean, he, his brother, you know, went down there with him, drove down there with him. But he was he was independent enough to want to go to an across entirely across the country to another state and then live there for a while. Uh, that's pretty independent for a teenager or, or he's 20 at this time. But, you know, that's pretty independent, I'd say. I mean, I don't think I would have done that at that age. Well, no, I mean, I, you know, I did it when I was 18, but I was living in a dorm. <laughs> yeah. There were people who made food for us and stuff. Uh, I, I don't think that I would have been able to do that either. That was pretty... Uh, I mean, I, I, I did that as a summer camp counselor where I went away for eight weeks and stuff. But again, you know, food and board were, were provided. I think that I would have, uh, if, at that age, ended up living on a bench and probably starving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to have your, your shit together to do what he was doing. And it seems like um, the group of guys that was all doing that, that weren't locals moving down, were probably all in the same sort of situation. You know, we, we I've spoken to a couple that were locals at the president in West Palm Beach, and then the rest of them would be just like Mike, coming down there and sort of working for the season and getting a feel for it. So... No. Well, there, there's there's so many things that make me sad about this, and one of the things that you know, once we figured out who these other people were, mm-hmm. who his coworkers were, and who his buddies were, and one of the things that just makes me sad, and I'm even having trouble even talking mm-hmm. about it, was that several of these guys went on to do exactly what Michael had wanted to do, right. which was. To, to establish himself in a career in this industry that had become more than just, you know, a, not a hobby, but, you know, a sport that he enjoyed. And they went on to do, you know, have long careers and successful careers doing this thing that they, you know, they love. I'm, you know, I work in radio mm-hmm. and I'm very passionate about radio and I feel very blessed to have <laughs> chiseled out a career in something that I really enjoy. I've, told my kids I, I don't feel like I've actually worked since I was maybe a sophomore in high school and I think with these guys t- to live their dreams and reach their dreams you know which is something Mike 
had gone there to do is just for me it's just sad it is it's it's very sad and especially being this many years out and still not understanding the whys of even what happened you know that's that is it's it is devastating uh, to families to friends to everyone to not really you know not only know that this sort of um possibility this limitless possibility that we all have at that age uh was was cut off at the legs felled but that we still don't know the how or the why we don't know if this was misadventure we don't know if this was foul play we don't know accident you know uh, carjack we don't know what it is so it's even hard to put a name on it so the first thing i want to ask you after going over all the police reports and the little of police reports um we had you and i were able to actually go a little bit further than some of the other folks covering the case have been able to do only because the family provided us with some notes from um mike's father who did a fantastic job i think of of taking down notes you know i'll I'll, I'll kind of start about how i got onto this and Mm -hmm. that was that in 2020 you know i was in college in california when mike disappeared i was a freshman mm-hmm. and this was back when people wrote letters to each other and coming back from christmas vacation my folks had moved out to monterey and finding a letter in my mailbox with news of edina and that mike olson had disappeared and that was just mm. staggering i mean you, you know I, I just a few months before lost a friend who i'd got to high school with and he had passed away after after battling cancer all through high school and that was oh, devastating but missing yeah. I mean, how, do, how does that happen? And I got back the next summer, and, you know, I was on the seventh or eighth ring of friends and acquaintances, and there were, you know, rumors and speculation. Obviously, the people way close in, you know, to the family, those group of friends knew what had happened, but uh, kind of lost yeah. track yeah. of what had happened. And in 2020, a radio station in Florida that I was consulting was working on creating a podcast about Florida mysteries. And while mm-hmm. compiling resources for them, I stumbled on something called the Charlie Project, which is a national database of people who have disappeared. And just, I, I just thought, I wonder if, and Tom typed in the name and, and there it was. And it, it laid out everything that had happened. Mm-hmm. So, and it was 2020 and things had slowed down dramatically for a lot of people. Radio stations don't close, so my work was just different. I was still working as much, but um, I did have other holes in the schedule, and I was really intrigued. How does a car disappear? That was the thing that just... Right. I, I couldn't get past. How does a car disappear? So I was able to, using various resources, find out, you know, where the hotel was. And in 2020, there hadn't been a story not that long before about the Oklahoma State Police. They had gone out, they were doing a training exercise to train their officers how to search for you know cars and water. And at the training exercise, they found two cars. Yeah. And they were both uh, from separate stories, but cars full of young people who decades before had just disappeared, either on the way from prom or whatever. So it... In, in the course of just kind of digging into this, and as, as I was so intrigued about the car, I did. I found some aerial photos now of where his hotel had been, and then where you know uh, it, where it was, and now it's a, a furniture store. And right behind it, there's this kind of wedge-shaped pond, mm-hmm. and I immediately thought, "Oh, there it is. That's got to be it." Right. So 
I reached out to some volunteer or, or not volunteer, but diving clubs, people who like to scuba dive down there. And I reached out to them and said, Hey, you know, if you ever wanted to, and I basically was told no because of alligators and stuff. But by then I'd also found a guy on Reddit who had found the, uh, sparse police report that I initially sent to you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I really just kind of dove in and I went down there in 2021 and, made a video a guy who had gone to high school with had become a chief of police in one of our suburbs and we had um, you know drinks out at a lake one afternoon and he remembered mike but he had never really heard the full story and i told him all about it and you know i told him i said you know what if we got a billboard i want to see dinah mm-hmm. <laughs> if everybody in this class pitched in 10 bucks let's get a billboard and you know and, and mike's thing was that you know, nothing bad is ever going to happen from keeping a light right. on a case, right. you know, and, and, you know, he, but he said, don't get into this whole Hollywood movie thing of somebody's going to drive by and have a guilty conscience and pull over to a phone and call. You know, that doesn't happen, but you know, maybe what it will do. And he had, he had closed a triple cold case homicide by arson and he had done it by incorporating a local police station. And it was genius. He had gone over to meet with the suspect and made sure that the TV was on. And at the exact moment that he's interviewing the suspect, the NBC affiliate ran a story about it and about how police were closing in. And the guy just fell apart. He didn't didn't admit it, but it shook him up. So Mike's thing was, he said, you know, in Florida, you need an advocate. Mm-hmm. You need people who you can work with. So, you know, I, I hit all the different affiliates. And I did stuff like that. And I made this video and I shared it with people. And I guess the goal was just to shake the trees and see what would fall out. And after a couple of years, I found myself getting tunnel vision, as I'm sure you do, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my tunnel vision was that he was in the water. And there's certainly a lot of places that he could have ended up in the water. Mm-hmm. And it's possible possible that he is. But I reached out to you because I needed somebody to kick me in the head and, and get me to think differently. And you did from the very beginning. I, I realized how, how much of a passive-aggressive Minnesota Lutheran I am uh, <laughs> compared to you because you, you just – you came in and just started going, well, what, and you found the guy who had been in Lake Worth. You know, what about this person? What about this person? What about this person? What about the guy he spent the night with? What was, you know, did you think about the guy he, he spent the night driving around with? You know, mm-hmm. and so, so all of that really, for me, you know, you, you lit another fire under me and you've gotten me to look at this in ways that I would, I had not before. The guy in Lake Worth to which Paige referred is Gary Lee Preston. So basically, I was doing some research into the carjacking theory. I was looking up old articles on newspapers.com with the idea in mind that Mike was targeted for his car. So during my newspaper archive search, I ran across this individual who had been arrested in February of 1980, not very far away, and just about two months after Mike went missing. He was arrested at the Lake Worth KOA, which is only about 12 miles from the Howard Johnson's parking lot where Mike stayed. So... First of all, the proximity is what piqued my curiosity. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find much on Gary Lee Preston other than a couple months after Mike went missing. 
There was a short article in the Palm Beach Post, and it read, A man wanted for murder in California has been arrested in a trailer park following an investigation of a stolen car. Gary Lee Preston, 35, of KOA Lake Worth, was arrested for possession of a stolen car after a tip by a Florida Highway Patrol trooper. Preston, alias Chris or Eric Bond, or Chris Sands, also was charged with possession of an estimated $10,000 in counterfeit money, possession of stolen tags, and possession of counterfeit instruments. Further investigation revealed Preston was wanted for murder in California, as well as more than 10 charges in the Naples area. Also arrested were James Phillips, 35, and Corin Love, 32, of the same address. Now, the other two individuals that were named were charged with possession of a stolen car and possession of counterfeit money. And that counterfeit part, well, I knew that would trigger a federal investigation, so I checked the Fed database for inmates, and I did find that Gary Lee Preston had done about three years in federal prison. But he was also convicted around the same time on a 10-year sentence in Collier County, Florida, for grand theft and check fraud. That conviction was for stealing money from the Southwest National Bank in Fort Lauderdale in September of 1978, and at the time of that arrest, he had seven other active warrants. I wasn't able to pry any documents out of the feds on this case, unsurprisingly, nor was I able to find any documentation related to that murder in California that the newspaper article referred to. But suffice to say, someone like Gary Lee Preston might be the type of person that you would be looking at in a carjacking situation. It did appear that he was working in the West Palm Beach area at the time that Mike went missing, and if, in fact, he was involved in another murder, that would be another red flag. I, I think, basically, the police just didn't really look at any of the guys that they were he was with that night. They didn't think that had anything to do with it, and they thought they sort of landed on foul play, either carjacking or... Um, in the, I don't even think they mentioned really in the water that much in the, no, there, there was, there was one reference to borrowed a boat and looked at a body of water. Right. But when you look at the interviews that the police did in the newspapers, we, we found all these articles, <laughs> they're talking about, you know, dragging the ditches and draining the ponds and everything. No, I think they looked at one body of water and it looked to me kind of that, Oh, it's our missing person scenario. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Step one, we're going to do this. Step two, we're going to do this. Step three, we're going to do this. Now, granted, they did stuff, and I'm not in law enforcement, nor should I be. But, you know, I would never have thought to call the jails to see if Mike was in jail. I would never have thought to call the West Palm Beach Police or Airport, which is right down the street, have them mm -hmm. check their parking lot. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like it was... Uh, investigation uh, by numbers. We do this, and then we do this, and then we do this, and then we talk to the people here. And, you know, and, and obviously, these are all good things, but I didn't there see aren't... a tremendous amount of detective work. Yeah, right. And I think that's common with from that time period, missing person cases. If it's an adult, a legal adult, the first thing is, you know, okay, 
maybe they did just leave, you know, the car's missing. So maybe he's with the car somewhere. And, you know, I think that's how they lose a couple days in the beginning of cases is they don't immediately start at least investigating toward the possibility of foul play. Just with that in mind, because you need to, um, you, if you don't do certain things in those first couple hours, days, it's lost forever. If you don't do things like canvas neighborhoods, if you don't do things like go and canvas, you know, clubs to see if people saw him, if you don't, um, speak to certain people and then they leave town. There's certain things you can only do in the beginning. And what I well, felt like, you know, is they maybe missed a few of those things. And, you know, one of the things that, that came back from talking with, you know, members of the family was it was really frustrating for the family because they weren't, the law enforcement wasn't sharing a lot of information. And when you look at the police record that we got, it was the family sending, calling them frequently saying, hey, mm-hmm. you know, he, Brett, he mentioned this person's name. Or hey, did you did you do this? And hey, there was this phone this phone bill that he had. And hey, you know, the family was continually barraging the police with stuff that they had they had come up with. But one of the things that and, and the family has a lot of grief, I think, about mm-hmm. the way it was handled. That the police weren't very open to them. But the other thing that I guess that they had been told repeatedly was, he's twenty years old. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah, and you know what I also think police lean sort of heavily into when they can't find an answer or like they did in this case is, oh, well, that car, you know, or, oh, so he had money on him. Somebody could have just, you know what I mean? It's always a leaning into a carjacking or drugs or, you know, and not that those things aren't possibilities. When you have no information, everything's a possibility. But the problem is it's kind of intellectually lazy to lean into something like that when you have no evidence that it even happened. There's no evidence any carjacking took place. There's no evidence of, you know, any foul play at all. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the father of a 20-year-old. And if my daughter was away at college and disappeared and a detective said, well, you know, she's 20, she can do what she's yeah, want. Yeah. I would be in jail. Mm. I would, I would, I would hurt somebody. If they said something like that about my daughter, well, she's an adult. Right. I Um, mean, not knowing my daughter and not knowing that this was really out of context for what she was. And and everything that you hear about Michael was, no, he's not a drug guy. No. You know, his passion was golf. Yeah, and he got a job doing golf, and he was keeping in regular contact with his family, and there was no no scenario where him running off was made any sense to me. Um, no, first of all, when you so you went to West Palm, you made a trip, you got the lay of the land after having the knowledge of what was in the police report and stuff. Are there any things that just seeing the area jumped out to you that made you you know think about any of the aspects of whether the theories or anything at all, anything that jumped out at you being on the ground there? Yeah, so first of all, the area, you know, that was one of the things that, again, that's after my trip, you know, and we've we've been talking to these people, you know, his supervisor and these other people, is that the Palm Beach Kennel Club was a pretty sketchy place. So, you know, it, it is possible. When you're 20 years old, you do think that you're invisible or <laughs> invisible. You think you're invincible. Mm, right. And uh, I know that in my late teens and through most of my 20s, I probably made some really poor choices that luckily I didn't befall any any any, any harm yeah. it wasn't a great area Mm-mm. the other thing that really struck me once we were there was it's a very small compact area all of this happened in a very sh- small yeah. box yep um 
it was, you know, in that night, they were like a pinball bouncing around, starting here, going there, going here, going back here, going over there, going back here, going over here, and then finally going home. And yeah, he did apparently have money, but the thing that jumped out at me was if there was alcohol involved, maybe he wasn't, you know, uh, on alert or, or really aware of, you know, other things going on. Somebody, if they had tagged him, so to speak, at the kennel club or at one of the bars, they still would have had to know either where he was, what hotel he was staying at, mm-hmm. which is unlikely. They would have had to follow him right. to the next bar. That's my, follow, yeah, yeah. That's... Then follow him down Congress right. to the church to drop off his, his buddy for the night and then follow him back up. And, you know, it's five in the morning. Uh, there's not a lot of cars out. If there was a car following me around and making the right turns and doing stuff like that. Again, if I was, uh, you know, had, had had some drinks, maybe I wouldn't be paying attention, but it seemed really unlikely for me just in that small area that somebody could have followed somebody for any length of time. Uh, that was my thing too, because if, if the idea is that they saw this water cash, alleged water cash, that he was allegedly flashing around, although the one person I talked to that was there that night said he didn't recall that happening, but... Uh, someone would have to have known that at the track and then, like you said, followed him to three or four places. That seems like an effort that I don't... uh, It doesn't make sense to me. Now, I could see him maybe at the... Someone carjacking him at the last place they were, but that that wouldn't have happened because he'd had to take Jim over to where his car was at the church, uh, allegedly. So whatever happened, happened after he dropped off Jim. Right. If and... Right. If, if if that part of the story, you know, is valid. Is valid. And that's the, um, yes, yeah, so that means if that's, if the story that we were told by the last witness that saw him is accurate, that means that from the church parking lot, taking, what, a little a, a left out of the parking lot, go down a couple blocks, make a right, and then an, another half mile, make a left, somewhere in that. I mean, I don't even think it would take five minutes to get from one to the other. I think oh, we're talking. No, no, I mean, it was really fast. Yeah, it was just down the road. So the idea that someone, a carjacker, encountered him, you know, unless it's at the Howard Johnson's in the parking lot, which again, we don't have any evidence to suggest. There is one thing that's interesting to me is um, that key that Brad mentioned, him and Jim finding in the parking lot later that evening when they went after work, when he didn't show up to check. He said they found a key laying in the parking lot. And, you know, back in the day, it wasn't a card key. It was an actual key with a little, long, you know, one of those oblong yeah, the, fobs the, on it. Yeah, the thing you drop it in the mail, it will get returned. Right. Well, it was a Howard Johnson's key, but he, Brad said it wasn't um, Mike's room number. And the one thing I wondered about that was, remember, there were two rooms on those last two days that had been associated with Mike, room 114 and room 130. For some reason, between Thursday and Friday, he moved rooms. Um, and we think that's because he was paying day to day. But what if one of those, what if that was one of the keys that he had, the prior key, and it ended up in the parking lot if there was some struggle that happened in the parking lot? We don't know anything about that because we don't even know. Brad could only remember that he thought they turned it into the clerk. But we don't know if police ever even learned about that. And the other thing we don't, that's a, that was a problem for me, number one. Number two, um, where, the, where the story breaks down for me is after, so basically we got documentation from 
um, Mike's family. You and I were able to track down, what, three, one, two, three, four, four or so people, five people that um, were mentioned in those notes. And when we spoke to one named Dave, and the listener's going to hear his interview, he was at the track. He's the only one we've spoken to that was at the track, except for Jim, but we haven't been able to interview Jim. You just got a couple um, emails out to him. But Dave said that the plan was that they were going to leave the track and meet up at the bar, which we figured out he was just talking about Mr. G's. He was calling it Bogart's in the beginning, but he described the corner of Congress and Okeechobee as where it was, and that's where Mr. G's was. So if the plan was to meet at Mr. G's, why didn't Mike and Jim show up at Mr. G's? That That is the point in the evening that troubles me. Right, and, you know, the, the reason for going to the Wild Side Bar, which, by the way, you know, lives up to its name. I found some newspaper articles about really violent crimes happening there. Yeah. This was not a place that they should have gone to, but they were there to see the Sugar Ray Leonard prize fight. Well, the Sugar Ray prize Leonard prize fight was also being shown that night at the Kennel Club. Right. So going, going to Wild Side wasn't necessarily, you know, a place that they needed to go if they wanted to see the Sugar Ray Leonard fight. And again, uh, just a really poor choice of places to go. Right. Um, my question is, uh, Dave didn't remember anything about the fight um, as far as meeting. So if that's, in fact, why they decided to change their mind and go to Wild Sides to see a fight, I would want to know why pol- police why didn't tell police that. Well, we decided to stiff Dave at uh, Mr. G's and go to Wild Side instead. As a matter of fact, Dave said he never spoke to police. That's problematic because you would want to speak with everyone who was at the at the uh, track there that night. And if in fact, and I, like I said, we don't have all the, the police reports and it's possible that Dave forgot that he spoke to police, but he, his memory seemed pretty good everywhere else. And he said he never spoke with police. So the one person who would know the fact that they were supposed to meet at one bar and then he went there for 20, he said 30, 45 minutes, no one showed up and he left. So there was some sort of change in the plan from the track to there, something occurred. Now, maybe they, Jim and Mike just decided, no, oh, we don't want to go there. We want to go to the thing instead. But why didn't he tell police that, if that's the case? That wasn't part of the story that we've heard. Didn't, didn't the police go and show their photos to people they at the sh- west side and nobody recognized they them? They were, well, they don't mention t- showing his photo around anywhere but Mr. G's. They did, the private investigator we know went and said they, you know, they couldn't, speak with anyone that would remember this kid but he seemed to sort of you know sort of slough that off as well it was very busy and it was I'm I heard it was very busy bar but what we what that means is nobody can vouch for the fact that they were at either of those bars we have no indication that anyone saw them at Wildside or Mr. G's the last place we know where Mike was was the track that's the last place we can we know that more than one person saw him there that would be Jim and Dave because they were both there so from that moment on because there seems to be some confusion as to why they did not go directly to Mr. G's to me that's where the last place we can account for Mike and you know we've got the water possible water theory we've got the carjacking theory but we also have to contend with the fact that there's a possibility that the story that we've heard from that last witness might not be accurate and if it's not accurate if there were if there's anything else that we don't know then that that's a possibility too that there's something that occurred that we don't know about and that's what led to Mike being missing 
Well, there's also, you know, in the reports, it was that Mike dropped him off at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. In the correspondence that I'd received from from when he said that they wrapped up the evening at 2 a.m. Right, right. I noticed that. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I also, you know, I have to factor in 43 years is a long time. It is. And, and um, you know, we, we some of the people we talked to, uh, like Brad, you know, his memory was very, very clear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Rich... Jensen. Rick mm-hmm. Jen- yeah, Rick Jensen, he, he, his memory was pretty good, too. You know, I look back to... 43 years ago where I was, I was in, you know, California, I was in college. I couldn't tell you much of anything. I mean, everybody has different, you know, capabilities and stuff. And I always thought I had a good memory. But I was, since doing this, I've been trying to pick my brains. And I, memories are my freshman year come back as Polaroids. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that when you're talking about times this, this long uh, out, it's, it's almost impossible to to put any weight in them. The one thing, the one inconsistency with what he um, Jim had written to you and in the police report um, that st- stands out is that the report police report says um, Mike may have lost about fifty bucks. Well, that's not what that that is what he told police. He would have told police, but that is not what anyone else was told at the. Every single person that we've spoken to at the uh, country club, the president, w- heard that Mike ha- had maybe won. The, the term that they were told was he had been wheeling trifectas and he had hit and he was, uh, you know, flashing around a lot of money. Um, so my biggest concern is when did it go from he lost to he won? Because those are polar opposites. That's not just, well, I can't remember if it was 2 o'clock or 5 o'clock or 10 o'clock. That's this guy losing versus winning and that makes a huge difference to any theory that you're talking about if he didn't win anything then he doesn't have a wad of money uh, that that he's that we maybe targeted that doesn't you know then we can't really say well someone was targeting for his money you know so that's a that's a, something that stands out to me one of the bigger things that stood out to me well the thing that stood out to me is that they didn't talk to the guys yeah that's that's the really. How, I mean, how, how do you not do that? Now, the the dad did. Mm-hmm. The dad went down there, and and that's how we got. Was, I it, I'd always assumed it was just the two of them, but then in the newspaper articles, Mike's father talked about Mike being out with the boys. So only when we got the father's notes were we able to see you know these other names and start to be able to put you know last names to first names. What's interesting when you actually go look at that list is there's only four names on that list. And we spoke to all of them. And two of the names of the people, Brad and Dave, Dave was never spoken to police. And he had an important piece of information in that he went to where they planned to meet after the track and they didn't show up. That's huge. And Brad um, tells us that he was with Jim and Mike in the hotel room prior to Jim and Mike heading off to going to the track. And the one thing about that is that that sort of corroborated by later when the um, Brad calls the next morning to find out why Mike's not at work and they send housekeeping up and all they see is a towel in the bathroom and the room hadn't been slept in. So he was really able to, I I think Brad did a great job of narrowing down the timeline for police because he called first thing that morning when Mike didn't show up. Had he not done that and had he not taken that extra step to send the housekeeping up to that room and open that door and no one would have gone in there maybe for days, and then police wouldn't have known when he went missing. 
Now, I did reach out to Jim a couple times, hoping to mine his memory for gold in the form of nuggets of details that he might be able to remember, particularly given he was the last person with Mike that night. I was unsuccessful in reaching him, but he did have a couple interactions with Paige via email, and this is what he said. Paige, although time has slipped by, the memory is always still hanging in the back of my mind. I do remember a private investigator was hired from a firm in Palm Beach. Mike's mom and dad would remember the details, and the investigator would know all the guys who were at the dog track that evening. There were five or six of us, and the last race was after 11 p.m. Then, because the rest of the guys had to work at 6 a.m., all went home. Mike and I drove to the Baptist Church at the corner of Cherry Road and Congress and left my van, getting into his new Grand Prix, driving to the first bar, and we had a few drinks with no problems. Then we drove a few blocks to the wild side, which I had never been to before, but I felt it was a bit rough around the edges, although I don't recall any disturbances. As it was around 2 a.m. and I had to be at work at 6, and Mike didn't have to be in until 10, he dropped me off at church, I drove home, and Mike was staying at the Howard Johnson's at Okeechobee in 95, about a mile away, never to be seen again. We stopped at the motel later in the day only to find all his belongings were still there, along with his golf clubs. Days later, his mom and dad came down, and I took them everywhere we had journeyed the days earlier. One note. Mike hit about five or six trifectas that evening, and at the time, you placed your bets at one window and collected your winnings at another. To be honest with you, Florida has a lot of seedy characters. I worked another year in West Palm Beach and kind of lost my love for the east coast of Florida. Certainly a tragic evening, but never any remains of his car or himself is quite baffling. The private investigator sent me some pictures a few years after it happened, but I didn't recognize any of the individuals. Feel free to call me. In this retelling, Jim says that they went to Mr. G's first, and then Wildside, which was the strip club. But that's the opposite of what is listed that he told police in that initial incident report. It does, however, confirm that it was just he and Mike after the track, suggesting that nobody else joined them at the next bar which still has me questioning why Dave showed up at Mr. G's, but Mike and Jim did not. In this letter, Jim also seems to confirm that not only did Mike win that night, which is the opposite of what the police report says, but that he hit five or six trifectas, which would have most certainly ended with Mike having a wad of cash. But unfortunately, when I spoke with him, Dave didn't remember any of them winning big that night. I very much wanted to speak with Jim. There are so many questions I would love to ask him, but a couple that stand out are whether he had spent any other time with Mike that week prior to Friday, like maybe on that trip to Fort Lauderdale that Mike took earlier in the week when he got that speeding ticket, or maybe on Thanksgiving, because nobody knows where he went on Thanksgiving. I'd also like to know whether Jim remembered Mike's missing shaving bag being in the hotel room that night or seeing it in Mike's car. And it's interesting that Jim ended up paying Mike's bill at the Howard Johnson's. I'd be interested in knowing how that occurred and what made him feel like he needed to pay that bill. He also knew about Mike having cashed that $700 check. And I'd like to know if he knew whether Mike was carrying that $700 around in his pocket that night and flashing that money at the dog track 
or if Jim knows whether Mike had left some of his cash back at the motel room. And it would certainly be important to know how much drinking was really going on that night. I would also want to fish his brain for what he remembers about that key that Brad said they found in the Howard Johnson's parking lot. Or what else Jim might remember about that apparent 1,200-mile drive that he said Mike had mentioned to him because no one else mentioned Mike saying that he was planning any sort of trip. But the two main things that I would want to know are why Jim and Mike never showed up at the bar where Dave went and whether there was some sort of last-minute change with Jim and Mike that left Dave alone at Mr. G's. For my part, and not having the rest of the report, the biggest inconsistency in the report is where it says that Mike may have lost 50 bucks that night, and that obviously came directly from Jim because he's the person that police spoke with, he and Mr. Jensen, and Mr. Jensen wasn't there. So why the initial incident report says he may have lost 50 bucks when everyone else that Jim spoke to said that they had been given the impression that Mike had hit that night and was flashing around cash. And that inconsistency began on day one. Brad said that that's what Jim told him when he called the bag room that morning, wondering what happened the night before and why Mike wasn't at work. And that's what got repeated to Scott and Rick, their supervisors. In an effort to get a bit more clarity on the wheeling trifectus business, as someone who knows nothing about the dog track, what I did first was I pulled up the results of the dog track that Friday night in the Palm Beach newspaper. And I learned that Friday, November 30th, 1979, was actually opening night for the season and they had a record opening night attendance, according to newspaper reports, so it was crowded. Now, trifecta betting is when you select three horses or dogs from a single racing event and predict which of the three will finish in first, second, and third position. And a popular way to bet, especially with lower minimums, is to box three or more and then wheel various combinations of their numbers. Boxing three or more horses or dogs is the most simplistic way of creating a lot of coverage. All of that I googled, but then I asked someone with a far greater understanding of the dog track and betting about what wheeling trifectas would mean in the context of this story on that particular night in 1979. After looking over the race results in the paper that I provided him, here's what he said. Appears there were 12 races on that Friday night. As to the results, far right of the page, the Q indicator shows the pay for the Quinella, first and second combo bet, and the T stands for trifecta, first, second, third pays. You will notice that really only races four and five from that Friday night yielded an unusually high payoff on the trifecta bets. Both paid over $2,000, which means even a $1 would pay over a grand on those races. Even more interestingly to me, in those races, virtually the same number combination paid off on each race. Race number four came in 561. Race number five came in 651. I mention this only because having played dog races, I know many, many folks, especially those that are not regular players, may well have been playing the numbers, essentially just picking a combination of numbers and betting quinella or trifecta using the same three or four number box. That bet is either $12, three number bet, or $24, a four number bet. In theory, someone playing the one five six combo or those numbers plus one other would have hit those two consecutive trifectas. 
Is that likely to have happened here? Of course not, but it certainly is imaginable, even to an extent foreseeable if one is playing numbers. That said, after the fifth race, while the pays are pretty decent, there's nothing that jumps out as really big, even considering the value of the dollar back in 1979. Weeks later, I would go back and look at the dog track results again from that Friday night, and I realized that there were actually three races where the 561 number combination came out. The very first race, race one, came in at 561, just like race four. This means that there were three races if someone played those same combination of numbers, five, six, and one, they could have hit three times by wheeling trifectas. I did ask Mike's family if those numbers held any significance for them, and they didn't stick out to them. Since you said that you're, you were sort of laser-focused on the water and the beanie, where are you now with your theories? Do you still lean toward water? Do you, what are your... I, I go with water, followed by uh, foul play with somebody trying to, to steal his money or take advantage of a situation at the kennel club or shortly after the kennel club, uh, a carjacking along the way or at the Howard Johnson's just, I don't, I don't feel it. Where have they not looked that you think needs to be looked in the water-wise? Well, there's, a, there's an organization called Adventures with Purpose, and they're, um, they're, they're famous. I mean, they go out and find cars all of the time. And cars that have been written off and victims have been written off by law enforcement just because, and they find them they find them all of the time so adventures with purpose stopped in uh west palm beach in april of 2022 and dove for a couple of hours there was bad weather and they were just on the way from one place to another place so they stopped and they found i think three cars not <laughs> our cars right or our car, but they found three missing cars. And then these were auto insurance fraud, you know, dumpings. Mm -hmm. uh, they provided uh, a list of, I think it was 18 places that they felt felt needed to be dove in or, mm -hmm. or, or dived on. Right. Uh, they have a, they have a metric. I want to probably screw it up. But I think it was like five miles and they take everything within the five mile radius and consider that to be in play. So, you know, I, I think that, I, I just, in my heart, I believe that he's in a body of water. He's had some drinks. He's tired. He's driving back. He hasn't been there all that long. So it could, even in that short period of time or short space, maybe, you know, there was a canal that he had to cross. There were some ponds left or west of uh, Congress. There were some ponds right of Congress. There was the pond behind the hotel. If he decided to just go straight, and go to the president's country club and sleep in the parking lot. And as a 20 year old male, I did that a couple of times, uh, rather than just go home, just go to work. Uh, there was a canal there that he had to cross also. So there were a number of possibilities that places that he could have ended up in. And you do see that where in Florida, Florida gives up a car or two a year mm -hmm. when, you know, they drain a canal or something. Yeah. And my two places that I think I don't, we don't know if they went into that uh, retention pond or whatever it is behind the Hojos. That would be, I would think, the first place you'd want to look. And we have no idea if it, if Adventures with Purpose even looked at that, do we? No. Because um, that, let's say he pulled into that lot, accidentally hit the gas instead of brake, and he, you know, um, slides right into the water. We don't know what that parking lot to to 
looked like then. We don't know if there were curbs. We don't know if someone could have slid right into that, you know, um, without... He would, have had to, he would have had to bounce a little bit across the field, I think. But still, in um, the pond isn't huge, Mm-mm. but it's big enough, I think, that you could get a car in there. I think there could be, too, yeah. So that's one of them. The other one um, that surprises me that Adventures with Purpose didn't focus on, they did go north, rather. Their theory was that it's possible he... They wanted to look closer to the um, to the president, and I don't think that's a viable theory, mainly because I don't think he would have gone in the clothes he went out in at night to his new job. He'd only been at a week if they had, like, un- any kind of uniform or whatever. I just don't. Plus, how's he going to wake up in the parking lot? That seems less feasible to me. But what seems the most probable to me is he got out made that right off of congress onto okeechobee and accidentally went through the light past his um hotel and then went into the water on the right on and clear lake on the south side of the causeway that they didn't even look at i mean he's on the same side of the that would be the most smooth transition into the water you pass the hotel oops accidentally go to hit the brake and you end up right there or if he attempted a u-turn on the causeway which is and then he could have been on just on the uh, just up on the other side of it on clear lake so my thing is they really need to be looking at clear lake on both sides of that causeway um because that would be to me the most reasonable place he went into the water and so i'm not sure why that area hasn't been searched unless they did back in the day um, and that's where they looked because Clear Lake was there and that causeway was there at the time. Um, a, I, just, I just finished a great book called Vanished in Vermilion, which is by a local reporter here in the Twin Cities about a case of two young women who went missing in Vermilion, South Dakota, I think in 1970. And they had gone out into the country uh, for a senior kegger. And even though they were juniors, there was a kegger out at a gravel pit or something. And they got spotted at a church looking for directions because out in the country you can get lost. And some people, some kids who were also at the church and gave them directions and they never showed up and they never found the car. And they actually um, ended up, there was a weird, you know, a weird kid who lived on that county road and he had done ended up doing some pretty reprehensible things so they tried to pin in when he was in prison they tried to pin this on him even though they'd never found the car and they ended up the police completely screwed up and they trusted a jailhouse snitch and all that stuff and this guy got found not guilty so one of the rural farmers watching this on the news that this guy had been found not guilty got in his atv and he retraced the steps and he paused on a little bridge over a creek and looked over the creek, and there it was. Oh, my gosh. They had, all the years, they'd been looking on the other side of the bridge. Mm-hmm. There were girls were going to, they found barbed wire that was up around the axle. Gravel road, those things get slippery. They went to the right, up a little hill through a fence, and then nose down into the creek bed, and then the car flipped over on top of itself in the water and this guy just stopped looked over and there it was wow. they'd always looked on the wrong side of the bridge having reviewed all of the information that's available to me which admittedly is certainly not all of it i would say that the first job would be to rule out the body of water behind the former howard johnson's motel now initially based on a single line in the incident report i assumed that that body of water had been checked the incident report reads quote it should be noted that a few days after this missing person report was made, Lieutenant Rain 
Sergeant McGinley, and Sergeant Conklin obtained a boat and checked the water area around this motel to no avail. I was able to track down a former member of law enforcement in West Palm Beach who not only worked for the agency at the time Mike went missing, but he was also a licensed diver. He also happened to know Jack Harwood, the private investigator, very well, and he was familiar with the details of Mike's case. He did not believe that there was ever an actual dive of that retention pond behind the motel, and he wasn't convinced that just taking a boat out for a look would be enough to rule it out. He described how mucky the bottom of that water is, and he said he certainly thought that it was deep enough to obscure a vehicle. In fact, to this day, what he knows about the case, and given his experience with retrieving vehicles from water, as well as cases that involved stolen cars, he thinks that the water theory is the most likely theory, and he did not put much stock in the carjacking theory in this case. Given the time that we had to work with, realistically, from when Mike left that church parking lot until he got to the motel. It was at this point that Paige and I decided to take the bull by the horns, as it were, and try ourselves to get someone to search a few locations that we believed should have been searched with divers on day one. When Adventures with Purpose came to town, they searched Clear Lake, but they didn't search near the south end, where it is bisected by 704, otherwise known as Okeechobee Boulevard, the road that the hotel was on. Paige and I poured over overhead imaging and maps, crossing out retention ponds that didn't exist in 1979, and we searched for old aerial shots that would depict the area as it was then, in 1979. Once we narrowed down the water sites that we believed were the most reasonable, based on what we knew about Mike's last known location and where he would have been headed after dropping off Jim, Paige started looking for a dive team. What we did yesterday, we went out to HCI College, and we actually managed, we figured it up last night, we managed to search around 13,000 square feet underwater in both, in both retention ponds and uh, the small canal that connects them. Um, a plethora of beer cans and garbage, and that, surprisingly, it was clean. So, I mean, it, it actually surprised us. We did get excited one time, but unfortunately it turned out to be a grocery cart. No, there's another grocery cart. Right a grocery yeah. cart. Uh, grocery cart. Uh, I got, my heart jumped when my detector went off and I thought, oh my God, and I felt it. Because you can't see anything, it's everything by feel. So I'm feeling it and I'm like, this bends like a bumper. Oh my God, oh my God. And then I reached in and realized it had a plastic top. It was a grocery cart. Theory. We can honestly say he's not in there. No. Um, we just want to rule him out. That's, you know, unless... If he's not in the places you look in today, I don't see him going way far afield, looking a mile up that Yeah, I know. I think the farthest we're looking to search, if we don't find him today, is going to be um, the Clear Lake area, the retention pond right. on the other side. Brent Arrowwood with the Darkwater Dive Center in Jacksonville, along with his team, donated their time and resources to meet Paige and me in West Palm Beach. We all congregated there, and they searched for two full days. They were able to rule out numerous bodies of water, mostly retention-type ponds, and they did so in record Florida heat. Brent and his team, Bo Warsham and Ken Scordo, stepped up, and we are so grateful to them for it. 
Now, there was a single body of water that they were unable to search before they left that weekend. They tried, but police shooed them out of the area pretty quickly. The south tip of Clear Lake that is bisected by 704, otherwise known as Okeechobee Boulevard. As of this writing, Brent was going to reach out to law enforcement again to see if he could make one more trip with his team and cover that area, and to get their permission to do so. It is, in my opinion, the last body of water that would need to be ruled out before any reinvestigation of this case could then be freed up to consider other possible theories. The truth is that while it's a clear path of examination to look into the bodies of water, when a human and their vehicle both go missing, together, it's lazy to just rely on the old, well, it's Florida, he's probably in the water somewhere. When you're considering the water theory, you must be able to articulate why a body of water might be in play. You have to consider what was going on at the time and what might be feasible and likely. But once you get boots on the ground in this specific case and you're able to see the area yourself, you realize how very close the dog track is to the church and then to the Mr. G's location at the end of the same street. Those are all on the same street within a mile. And then you take a right, head down Okeechobee, and you're at the Howard Johnson's. There is an alternate route where you don't take a right onto Okeechobee, but you go through that light, and then you take one of the first rights, and you will turn into the service road that accesses all of the back of those buildings, and it can take you in a straight shot all the way back into the back of the Howard Johnson's parking lot. It's very close. Close enough that it would be hard to imagine getting lost if you had driven back and forth over that same road all night, as Mike had. Once you're on the ground there, it also gives you a far greater perspective on the water theory and how there are actually limited reasonable possibilities given the facts as we know them. So what I'm going to do is I will update listeners if Brent is able to get permission from law enforcement to search that Clear Lake area, at which point, if he is denied access, then we're going to want to know if the West Palm Beach Sheriff's Department is going to search that area. I'm also going to put together a visual podcast with footage from the dive, as well as a real-time drive of Mike's route in the dark that evening. You can find some of my cases over on YouTube at Down and Away True Crime. I've started to try and archive my previous podcast seasons over there, and I've even created documentary videos of some of the cases that I've already covered. Mike's family still wants and deserves answers. And honestly, I and Paige and everyone that was with us that weekend had hoped that we would find Mike because the most palatable scenario for any family in this position would be that their loved one died accidentally and did not come to harm due to the malevolence or carelessness of another. We had hoped to give them that. Unfortunately, we couldn't. You know, his supervisor, Rich Jensen, I mean, you can tell that all of these years later, he has never stopped thinking about Mike. And, you know, that was the very first communication I got from him was just that, you know, he would go every annually and just go to Google and see if there'd been any hits. And that whenever he saw a story about a car being pulled from a pod, he thought it was Mike. And when I, you know, I texted Brad and he has no idea who I am. And he replied within 15 minutes. And yeah. then he called. And he was, 
emotional. He said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to get through this. He still, this still bugs him. So it just, you know, it, it, it was interesting to see that this, these people had, had not forgotten about Mike and were as concerned or baffled as we are. Not only as concerned, they dug in and they had helped us find the next person and talk to the next person and, and contact this person. And, oh, I know someone in law enforcement. Let me talk to them. Oh, let me get them to contact. I mean, literally through some of these people, I think it's a good possibility that the police are re-looking at this investigation simply because of information that, you know, has been passed on as we were opening up and people are remembering things. And I think it's, it, you know, it is a testament to who Mike was that all these people were going out of their way to do that. If you have any information about Michael Olson, what happened in 1978, how he may have gone missing, please contact the West Palm Beach Police Department at 561-822-1700. Mike's case number is N. 75189. You can also contact Palm Beach County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-458-TIPS. That's 1-800-458-8477. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I want to take a minute to thank specifically all of the people that helped me this season. Paige and I really worked together on all of this, putting it together, and I will put a link to his YouTube video about Mike's case where he visited West Palm and I will also put a link to the Adventures with Purpose dive that was related to this case even though they didn't find anything you might be interested in taking a look at that finally I want to thank the guys all of those guys that I spoke to asking questions about a guy that they knew decades ago for a very short time every single one of you guys was so helpful and not just helpful went out of your way to contact someone for me or find out one nugget of information that I needed. Thank you to Rich. Thank you to Brad. Thank you to Scott. Thank you to Dave. Thank you to Randy. Thank you to Tom. Thank you everlastingly to Malcolm Brent Arrowwood with the Darkwater Dive Center in Jacksonville. He and his team, Bo Warsham and Ken Scordo, really did have their job cut out for them. When it comes to the Florida heat, if you know, you know. It was brutally hot all weekend. But the collective mood was positive and everybody knew what we were there to do and did it gladly. On a personal note, you take deep dives into cases like this and it probably goes without saying that you can become a little jaded. The closure rate on unsolved cold cases nationally hovers somewhere around a percentage so low, I won't even say it out loud, it'll just make you sad. So it's real easy once you know that to get discouraged when you look at as many cases as I do. But the one thing I know for sure that applies to every single one of them is that that missing person or that homicide victim is a somebody to someone. And every single person who's had the misfortune to have their name written in Sharpie on a tattered old file folder within a box that languishes somewhere in the records department of a police or sheriff's department deserves everything that can be done to get done without question. In the case of Mike Olson, I don't think everything that can be done has been done. Not yet. I truly hope that law enforcement is giving this case another look. 
Thank you all so much for listening, as always. Music this season by Blue Dot Sessions. I'll see you next season.